Welcome to Below the Line, a podcast by the Northwestern University Law Review. I'm Danielle Burkowski. And I'm Amanda Wells. And we're both editors for the Northwestern University Law Review Online. In this episode, we are thrilled to bring you attorneys Danny Greenfield and Maggie Filler with the MacArthur Justice Center. Our guests will be discussing the upcoming Northwestern University Law Review Symposium, Rethinking Solitary Confinement, to be held at the law school on Friday, November 8, 2019. Danny Greenfield joined the MacArthur Justice Center in 2017. His work focuses on appellate litigation to end prolonged solitary confinement, the practice of isolating people in small cells for up to 24 hours a day, for months, years, and sometimes decades. Maggie Filler is a solitary confinement attorney with the MacArthur Justice Center, where she files strategic litigation on behalf of prisoners who have endured years of extreme solitary confinement in prisons across the country, with a focus on federal trial court litigation. We hope you enjoy the episode. Thank you both so much for being here. Thanks for having us. Delighted. Uh, The first question that I have is just to get a feel for the work that you do in solitary confinement uh, and how that relates to the upcoming symposium. So we are so excited about the symposium that the Law Review is putting on this year. We think it's going to be a fantastic opportunity to bring together some amazing folks who work in this field but who don't necessarily always have the opportunity to get together, sit down in a room, and talk about the latest advances in in this work. Um, So I think it's going to really uh, help push forward the work that Danny and I are doing to one day eradicate solitary confinement in this country. Uh, What are you excited about for the symposium? Any particular speakers or events that you think the public should know about? So I'm really excited that the Law Review is bringing uh, together people from who are attacking solitary from very different vantage points. Uh, you have uh, scholars who are writing about um, theories of solitary confinement challenge. You have practitioners uh, who have been litigating in the trenches. And you have solitary confinement survivors. You have uh, also former, uh, uh, at least one former prison official who will talk about uh, ways in which solitary confinement has been reformed. And some recent really exciting news that we get to share is that we've uh, learned that Albert Wood Fox is going to attend the symposium, which is really exciting. He served more than four decades in solitary confinement. Uh, He was one of the Angola Three and he was in Angola, Louisiana, in some of the harshest conditions of confinement that there are. And he's recently written a book about his experience, and we're so thrilled that he's going to be joining us uh, for the symposium. So um, everybody should read his book and get ready to um, hear him speak on November 8th. So you both mentioned some litigators and scholars and survivors who want to see solitary abolished. Um, Why should the average person care about this? I think the application of solitary confinement um, uh, should embarrass every member of a civilized nation, every member of a nation that's not civilized. Um, It uh, reflects very poorly on us that we uh, inflict this cruel punishment uh, 
on people um, while we know that it uh, causes grave physical and psychological injury. Uh, and we also know that it serves very little penological purpose. Um, uh, many former correctional officials would say that solitary doesn't make prisons safer. In fact, it may make them more dangerous. And so we are destroying minds and bodies without any reason to do so. I agree. I think solitary confinement demeans all of us. You know, the fact that we have 80,000 people in solitary confinement in this country um, is just atrocious. And we should be judged by the way that we treat people who are the most vulnerable among us. And I think that we are. And I think that the, the work that we and other solitary confinement litigators are really trying to do is to show you know, people who might not ever set foot in prison or might not know somebody who's set foot in prison, um, you know, how, what we're actually doing to people um, so that there can be no excuse for people to claim lack of knowledge. I think a natural follow-up to that question is, um, don't some people need solitary confinement? Aren't there people that need to be kept away from society or from other individuals? You know, Danny and I have the opportunity in this work to, to get to talk to some of the foremost correctional experts, um, you know, that are out there. So people who have served as correctional officers and people who have served as head of departments of correction um, and who speak to us uh, about, you know, who really needs to be in solitary. Does anybody really need to be in solitary? And uniformly what we hear from these folks who I wouldn't characterize as, you know, political lefties um, or prison abolitionists is that solitary is dramatically overused, right? So the first answer to that question is not the way that we use solitary confinement today. Um, and then I think the second answer to that question, which is really important for all of us to have in mind, is that, uh, you know, really is the issue solitary confinement and isolation or is it separation and a reset? I think a lot of what we see in terms of the prison behavior that uh, correctional officials are seeking to address doesn't need over four decades in, in solitary confinement, might not even need, you know, 60 to 90 days in solitary confinement, but it might need some separation from the prison, maybe a transfer to a different facility, maybe some restriction on privileges. Um, and so I think what the challenge of solitary confinement asks of us is to kind of envision another way to address issues and also hopefully a more proactive approach. You know, you see time and time and again the same situations. Somebody obviously had an issue with another prisoner and it went unaddressed, unaddressed, unaddressed until there's an incident of violence. And so I think part of what this asks of us is how could we run our prisons in a more uh, harm-reducing manner? And I, I think it's important to note that there are many reasons that people are placed in solitary confinement. And frequently, it has nothing to do with a risk or perceived risk of violence. Uh, I have clients who are in solitary confinement because their religion compels them to violate prison grooming requirements. Uh, some of my clients uh, are required by their religion to maintain a beard, and the prison uh, may forbid that. And there is absolutely no reason to hold someone in what amounts to a sensory deprivation chamber for years on end merely because they want to observe their faith. 
So to answer the question of whether some people needed to be in sol need to be in solitary, I'll, I'll concede that there is maybe, you know, some hypothetical prisoner, uh, the Hannibal Lecters of the world, who you could, could conceive of needing to be kept apart from other humans. But that is the exception. And there are very, very few people in reality who need to be alone and who should be alone. And uh, humans are a social species. Uh, not all animals are. Uh, our brains crave interconnectedness. They need interconnectedness. We require diverse stimuli to function. And solitary confinement is sort of akin to depriving people of food and water. It's uh, hard to imagine that that could make prisons safer. And in fact, the data show that it makes prisons more dangerous. I could add another example, too, of you know some of the reasons why we see that people are in solitary confinement. One that shocked me the most when I started doing this work was people who hurt themselves. So injuring yourself isn't really you know, putting a risk to other people or the security of the institution. I just, I, I still, I can't really figure it out. Um, but that is, you know, can lead to people being isolated in solitary confinement. And it's so, uh, you know, wrong-headed because we know, of course, that solitary confinement is terrible for people with mental illness, that it leads to self-injury and self-mutilation, and even uh, it can lead to suicide. Um, so, you know, that, that kind of logic is so twisted. But, uh, you know, that's unfortunately another reason that people sometimes go to solitary confinement in addition to things like needing um, to be protected from other people seeking protective custody is you know really akin to solitary confinement in terms of the isolation and the hours that you're going to do in your cell each day so we've talked about the harms that solitary confinement causes and here we have two attorneys in court fighting to end this can you tell us a little bit about what you're thinking about when you're reasoning in cases? Any strategies? Do you work together with um, district court litigation and then appellate court litigation? So I think it would be useful to uh, ex explain the process. Um, typically, I am appealing cases that were litigated pro se, meaning by the prisoner uh, herself or himself in the trial court. And in terms of what I'm looking for in a case, one, uh, a case that has the potential to make good law, and two, a case that's compelling. And what I mean by that is uh, a situation that easily illustrates the harms of solitary confinement and why it is important for three Federal Court of Appeals judges to care about this case. Uh, and I think uh, the two go together. So I'm unlikely to take a case that's particularly compelling if I think it's going to be uh, result in bad law being made, and I'm unlikely to, uh, actually, now that I'm thinking about it, I <laughs> would definitely take a case that's not terribly compelling if I thought that it would make good law and uh, prevent further people from being subjected to the harms of solitary confinement. And so most of my cases have uh, Eighth Amendment conditions of confinement claims uh, and or Fourteenth Amendment procedural due process claims. Uh, in the Eighth Amendment context, we are arguing that solitary, 
um, either because of the isolation uh, it imposes uh, on everyone or because the isolation of solitary when coupled with this particular individual's pre-existing vulnerabilities is likely to cause uh, grave injury. And when we uh, bring procedural due process claims, what we are arguing is that solitary is deadly serious business and it is a uh, significant deprivation, thus it creates a liberty interest. And because of that, it cannot be imposed without meaningful process and it cannot be renewed without meaningful process. So sometimes we also bring claims wherein, wherein we argue that solitary confinement impedes the delivery of necessary medical care. Uh, we sometimes uh, argue that solitary confinement uh, constitutes a substantive due process violation. Um, and those are really the primary uh, claims that we're litigating. Uh, Maggie sometimes has more flexibility than I do because she is bringing cases in the original uh, instance, uh, whereas I am finding cases that uh, are already uh, ongoing and the claims uh, exist, and it's by the time it uh, gets to me, it's too late to bring new claims. So Maggie has an opportunity to be a little bit more creative in terms of claim, claim selection. And I think one of the things that's really unique about our project is the way in which Danny and my work coincides. So I have the really incredible opportunity as a district court litigator to talk to Danny and benefit from his perspective as an appellate specialist to think about when I'm writing this complaint, what are the issues that I want to make sure I'm preserving? What is the language that if this ever goes up on appeal, Danny's going to kick me if I didn't include? Um, and I think that that's extremely helpful to just have that perspective. And it's not something that I had really done before in my work to work so closely with an appellate litigator. And I think it's really made a world of difference. And my work benefits immeasurably from Maggie's um, in the trenches uh, uh, experience. Um, Every once in a while, I have to engage in settlement negotiations, and Maggie knows the lay of the land in that regard much better than I do. She understands the workings of uh, certain prison systems better than I do because Maggie engages in discovery, and I don't. So I think you know, her, her micro-knowledge is uh, exceptional, and I benefit from that. So in the past couple years, we know the Supreme Court has changed its makeup pretty drastically. Naturally, you're both not working in the Supreme Court all the time, but the federal judiciary around the country has also been changing. Has this impacted either your litigation strategies or uh, the litigation strategies of people you work with? The short answer is yes. Kennedy's departure has impacted uh, my litigation strategy, at least when it comes to seeking cert. And in the usual case, I would not seek cert. Uh, there is one type of case, at least, uh, where I think that cert still might be uh, strategically sound, and that is what I would call a solitary plus case. So solitary with the addition of some other deprivation that might matter to members of the court who would be uh, otherwise unlikely who would un uh, otherwise be unlikely to be moved by the deprivation of solitary alone. And so I have a couple cases uh, where um, 
prisoners in solitary confinement were also denied the opportunity to observe their religion. Solitary is bad enough on its own. Solitary without the salutary effect of religion, I think, is probably unbearable. And I think that is the sort of case that you might imagine uh, petitioning for cert on, uh, even you know, given the current composition of the court. You know, there's no denying that I think the, there are concerns about you know the federal judiciary and whether it's going to be receptive to these types of claims brought by prisoners. You know, at the same time, the momentum is clearly in favor of you know dramatically rethinking solitary confinement, and I don't see that momentum slowing down significantly. I think that there's more and more state legislatures that are reforming solitary confinement because they realize that it's the right thing to do. Um, more and more experts are going to continue to speak out about this issue, um, and you know we're seeing the advocacy community really step up against solitary confinement in a way that I don't see slowing down. Uh, yeah, Maggie raises a really good point there. Notwithstanding the departure of Justice Kennedy, there there is still momentum and. As just one unexpected uh, example, last week uh, or the week before, the Eighth Circuit handed down a split decision in one of my cases. It didn't turn out the right way, but Judge Erickson, who's a recent uh, Trump appointee, wrote very movingly about the harms of solitary confinement and actually called for constitutional scrutiny of the practice, saying it was time for the court to stop ignoring its pernicious effects and to hold it uh, to constitutional scrutiny. And even the majority opinion acknowledged the scientific consensus that solitary confinement inflicts injury. That's unlikely to have occurred 10 years ago. Do you think abolition of solitary confinement is a possibility with this court? While you haven't brought cert petitions lately, is that something that you'll think about doing? It's impossible to say for certain that I wouldn't petition for cert on a case designed to abolish solitary confinement with the current composition of the court, but I think it's very unlikely. It would have to be the perfect case, and I haven't seen the perfect case, well, ever, but I certainly haven't seen a case that I would feel comfortable putting before the court right now. I think the abolition of solitary confinement is going to be most likely when we have a broad diversity of people coming to the table to push for an end to this practice. I don't think that the court is going to do it alone. I think it'll be legislators, it'll be activists, it'll be um, policy makers uh, from you know across the spectrum in terms of psychiatrists and correctional experts and medical doctors who um, you know call for an end to, to solitary confinement. So this symposium could really be sort of one big step into bringing people together to think about what it could look like or how to change the practice if we can't end it. Yeah, I mean, it's a catalyst. Anytime you have that many people from diverse backgrounds in, in the room, I think you have the opportunity to foment great change. And uh, Maggie mentioned some of the stakeholders who were involved and their work is invaluable. And it is the psychiatrists and psychi psychologists and 
others who have been studying the harmful effects of solitary confinement for decades that has moved the needle. It's, I think it's one thing for progressive litigators like myself to argue based on case law that solitary confinement doesn't comport with a constitutional amendment. But when the data is unimpeachable, I think that it tends to move jurists and legislatures uh, and the public consensus in a very powerful direction. And hearing from correctional officers that solitary confinement is unnecessary is really profound. And I think that that will have a great impact. Agreed. And I want to put a plug in, too, for you know, just listening to solitary confinement survivors, you know, I think the the power of the individual experience is, is hard to overstate too when it comes to moving public opinion. I know that after um, Khalif Browder lost his life at Rikers Island, that was a huge um, catalyst, as Sandy said, for, for people to start to rethink what we're really doing here. And it was Justice Kennedy cited that example um, in his really key concurrence on this issue. So I'm really excited that we're going to have two solitary confinement survivors speaking at the symposium. A lot of social movements require the cooperation of legal professionals, lawyers, litigators, and community groups, community organizers. Um, Usually these movements aren't done on their own. How can people who aren't lawyers, who aren't involved in the law, get involved in this issue? Absolutely. So there are a lot of organizations that organize um, at the national level, but also more locally in your community around stopping solitary confinement. The national movement is Stop Solitary Confinement, but lots of states have uh, individual pieces of legislation that advocates have been pushing. So, so find your local community group and plug in there and see if there's you know, a, a key piece of policy that you can get behind to change this practice. You know, New Jersey just passed a law limiting solitary confinement to 15 days, which is, uh, you know, one of the biggest things that's happened for the movement to end solitary confinement in a long time. And even if you don't have time to become an activist, pick up the phone and call your state senator, your state representative, and let them know that you think this practice is barbaric and that you will be watching how they vote if and when this issue comes before them. And that can have a tremendous impact. So I have a case that I think sort of typifies the uh, futility of solitary confinement that I'm currently litigating in the Seventh Circuit. Uh, I have a client who was placed in solitary confinement essentially because he's very mentally ill. And he would be the first to concede that. And he was designated seriously mentally ill by the Department of Corrections. Uh, And he engaged in behavior that um, was emblematic of that mental illness. And with frequency, he would defile his cell with his own feces and he would smear feces on his body. And for that, he was punished with increasing increments of solitary confinement. And as he began to decompensate, he was unable to maintain the cleanliness of his cell. He was not able to maintain its organization. And rather than recognizing that someone is having a psychotic 
are suffering from a very serious mental illness, um, the DOC would remove even further privileges. So in the end, they took away his ability to leave his cell for exercise. So he spent eight or nine years in solitary confinement. The final three years of that solitary confinement, he was confined to his cell 24-7, except for medical appointments or attorney visits. He didn't get outdoor exercise. He didn't get indoor exercise. It's an extreme example, but it's not unique. Mental illness is punished in our prisons, and one of the ways that that punishment is doled out is through inflicting solitary confinement, which increases mental illness. And it's a vicious cycle with tragic consequences. Wow, Danny, that is so tragic. And it reminds me actually of a case that I'm litigating. I had a client who ended up spending over 12 years in solitary confinement because he was unable to participate in a program that was meant to get people out of solitary confinement. Um, solely because of his mental incapacity at that time and also because of his inability to speak and read uh, English. Uh, What's one thing that people can do to learn more uh, about solitary confinement? Well, you can attend the symposium at Northwestern. That's going to be a fantastic opportunity for especially law students, but really for anybody who's listening to attend and you know, learn a lot about the subject matter in one day. You're going to hear from a variety of practitioners all across the field, and it would be a great um, way for people to deepen their knowledge if they already know about solitary, but I think also to, to learn about solitary confinement. Um, so go register. And it's open to the public. Everyone can come. It is. I'd just like to plug, in addition to the solitary symposium, two pieces of easily accessible media that I think really tell the story of solitary in uh, short order. One is Albert Woodfox's book, Solitary. The other is this a wonderful documentary that HBO put together called Solitary Inside Red Onion State Prison. And we litigated, litigate a lot of cases out of Red Onion. And it really does a great job of um, showing the horrors and futility of solitary confinement. If you love podcasts, the podcast Ear Hustle talks about prison generally at San Quentin Prison in California. Uh, They also do have some episodes on solitary. I love that podcast. And check out our website at MacArthurJustice.org because Danny and I post about our cases. We have a blog, and we try and include as many case materials as we can for people who are interested in a deeper dive. The ACLU Stop Solitary website is an incredible resource. uh, And... There is also a website called Solitary Watch that is uh, invaluable. So there you have it. We have tons of resources for everyone available who wants to learn more. Um, Thank you so much for joining us, Danny and Maggie. A reminder to our listeners that the upcoming symposium, Rethinking Solitary Confinement, will be hosted on campus at Northwestern Pritzker School of Law on Friday, November 8, 2019. For more information, visit the Northwestern University Law Review website at northwesternlawreview.org slash symposium. Today's episode of Below the Line was edited by Olivia Vega, hosted by Danielle Burkowski and Amanda Wells. Special thanks to Danny Greenfield and Maggie Filler, Emily McCormick, Melissa Bressler, Ken Zabler, Jean Wongbo, and Annie Prosnitz. Our music is June Funk by Finn Johnston. 
If you like our podcast, please rate and review us in iTunes, subscribe in Apple Podcasts, or follow us on SoundCloud. Thanks for listening.